When I was in graduate school, I would work during the summers at random jobs. One summer, I worked for the city of Dallas painting their local schools. Um, so we would join the normal crews who painted the schools and just spend a summer painting with them. We were painting uh, a school, we were painting the gymnasium at a school, and I was assigned to work with a man three stories up painting the ceiling of the, uh, the gymnasium. Now, I'm going to tell you about the man who was up there with me. His name was Sonny. Sonny was a retired boxer. At one time, he'd been a sparring partner for Muhammad Ali. And as a result of all his years boxing, there was a reason he had to retire from boxing. Interesting thing about Sonny was that he had boxed in South Africa. And so when I joined the crew, he knew that I'd come from South Africa. And with everybody on the crew, I went up and shook hands with him. Sonny would not shake my hand because Sonny was a black man. And he looked at me, and he'd been to South Africa boxing, and he looked at me. This was back in the apartheid days of South Africa, and there was no way he was going to shake hands with a white South African. And here we were, three stories up, painting the ceiling. And Sonny turned to me, and, and I was in graduate school at the seminary, and he, they called me Rev. He turned to me and he said, hey, Rev, why do you treat black people the way you do in South Africa? Well, at that moment in time, it wasn't just political discussion. My life was on the line. I mean, I'm three stories up with this man who, I mean, his fists were enormous. And so, <laughs> here I am like, oh, dear Lord, what am I going to do? So I said, all right, let me explain apartheid to you, and let me explain that I do not support it and do not believe in it, but let me explain what the idea was behind apartheid. And apartheid, the word was from English and Afrikaans word, the state of being separate is what it meant. So I said, here's the concept behind it. They've discovered in studying the history of, of Africa that it is always best that each country is inhabited by and run by a single tribe because the tribes are so distinctly different from one another that forcing several tribes to come together and try and create a, a single country out of them is just a, a, a recipe for disaster. Um, the Zulus and the Sutus are so different. They're as different from one another as the Germans and the French are. Can you imagine forcing the Germans and the French and the English all to make one country together? You'd have constant. So I said, that's the idea. That's the difficulty that you face in Africa. And so the concept of apartheid is this, to divide the country into separate states and to give each tribe their own independent state within South Africa and then to form sort of a confederation of states within countries. So each tribe would get its own state. And I said, so understand I don't support the idea. I didn't tell him why I didn't support it. The idea, was, the problem was this. That concept gave to 70% of the people 17% of the land. And the white tribe kept all the best land, all the parts, all the, the major cities. And so it was, it was a ridiculous idea. It actually was a racist idea, okay? But anyway, so I explained to him, that's the idea, is to cut South Africa up into separate states and to give each tribe their own state so they could run their independent state that way. To my shock, he said, I love that idea. I was like, really? It turned out he was a member of the Nation of Islam. And the Nation of Islam at that time were lobbying to get a state set aside in the United States of America where only blacks could live. And so 
here I found that instead of me being my life being on the line, he's going, I love that idea. I support that idea. And then to my shock, he became somebody who began to tell people all about this wonderful idea in South Africa and how apartheid is a wonderful thing to, 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 to support. So it was just, it was the most, the weirdest sensation. He never did check my hand, by the way. That, that, was, that was not going to happen uh, at all anyway. But the weird thing is, then as he began to, to defend it, I found myself on the opposite side of the picture feeling what it's like to have somebody making racist statements about whites all the time and how they want to, to have their own independent state and stuff like that. And it was, it was a, a strange experience for me. When I was in seminary, they took me through a, a massive set of tests. to you know, they, they test to make sure whether you're going to survive in the ministry. The one thing that showed up about me was that I had zero prejudice, which was quite a shock to the professors and to the psychiatrists who took me through. It's like... How come you can live in South Africa and have zero uh, prejudice? Well, I had a family that, that raised me the right way, that way. But here's this, the shocking thing about apartheid. The apartheid system was developed by people who called themselves Christians. And the apartheid system was defended by people who called themselves Christians. And many of the architects of the, architect, of the uh, apartheid system had doctor's degrees in theology. And you go, how in the world could they have come to that? Well, it's because they studied theology, they didn't study the Bible. If they'd studied the Bible, they'd have come to the book of James. And in the book of James, they'd have been told that for followers of Jesus, discrimination is inconsistent, illogical, and illegal. And sometimes it's great to preach a sermon in a setting where I know this is not something that we need to be rebuked about. This is just something we need to be reinforced with. James is writing to people who are living in a, in a world that is completely racist. Every single nation hated the other nations, competed against other nations. They constantly looked down upon one another. And in every society, they, you found that they had levels of people who were valuable and less valuable, more valuable, less valuable. So every single society had that. We still have nations like that in this world today where there are people who, are, because of their social standing, they're considered whether they're valuable or less valuable based upon socioeconomic status, language, accent, whatever. We find ways as human beings to separate out. And so the world that, that, that James is writing to is a world that was completely split apart by, by people who, who look down upon one another. But Jesus said, I want to tell you something. The world will know that God is real, and the world that will know that I am God when they see the love you have for one another in the church. And so what James has to do is to address something here that is going to go completely countercultural. In their culture, they're used to living that way, that kind of hostility, that kind of racism, that kind of, of competitiveness that's part of their character. And as James is writing to them, he's going to tell them that's got to stop. From now on, it has to change. You have to stop discriminating against others because Jesus has commanded us and told us that the world will love us, based, will know that, that he is God based upon our love for one another. And so the first thing James points out to them is that discrimination is inconsistent with the fact that we claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hi, guys. Ooh, we have a whole nother row for you this time. Well, or you can just sit on each other's laps, whichever works out easier. Yeah.
before we, before we see what he says to them, here's the beauty of it. They did what he told them to do. Okay? They became such an incredible counterculture that within three centuries, the entire Roman world was completely turned upside down. This, these followers of Jesus Christ, small to start with, began to grow and to grow and to grow. And as their numbers grew, they eventually got to the place where they were so predominantly part of the Roman Empire that the Roman Emperor just simply declared that Christianity was now the state religion and turned the whole thing over. But they listened to what God's Word said, and by the power of the, word, of, of the Spirit of God, they began to do what James is instructing them to do, and other churches did it as well. So we're seeing people who are being told now you need to learn how to live counterculturally, and they did. He says, brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. The word favoritism means to lift up the face. I remember my grandmother used to come to us, and she'd take our face in her hands and lift your face up and just love you. And that's where the word came from, to lift up the face. So that was the idea, to lift up the face. And then it came to show favoritism to one child or another. Then it came just to mean to show favoritism in general. The other word he's going to use, discrimination, is, a, is an evil word. It means to choose, to, dis, to separate people into valuable, less valuable people on that basis. And he says, my brothers and, and uh, sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. In fact, the verb says stop. In other words, they were part of the culture. They were doing what was in the culture. They were discriminating against one another. And so he tells them to stop doing this. Because when you stop doing it, you, do, you reveal the glorious Lord Jesus. Here's a way to understand about God. Our minds and, and the world we're in have shrouded God, so we don't really know what God is like. Does he love us or doesn't he? Is he good or is he bad? And what Jesus did was he stripped away the shroud and revealed to us that God is love. And then he said to his disciples, and the world will know that God is love when they see the way you love one another. And so therefore, within the church, discrimination had to stop. And he gives an example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now you can imagine why that could happen. That somebody who comes in and he says a gold-fingered man, obviously he's wealthy, you can tell by his dress, a gold-fingered man comes in and immediately you would think, pay special attention to him because in their culture of those days, which is not similar to ours at all, People who have money are more valuable, aren't they? And he said, so if somebody comes in and obviously he's more valuable, your inclination is to treat him better. Somebody comes in, he's shabby, dirty clothes, and you will tend to tell him, sit somewhere else. This, this is a passage that, that struck a nerve in me years ago. My office in, in Houston, a church in Houston, a man came in one day, you could smell him coming up the stairs. He was homeless, he was filthy, he was dirty, he came up the stairs, and he was looking for money. And I could tell him, honestly, we didn't have any money that we had in the church. We had uh, some cards we could give that he could use at a grocery store, but that was about all we had. And then I ushered him out the door as quickly as I could and opened the windows and cleared the place out. And later in the day, a man arrived driving a Mercedes. And he came up the stairs with a Rolex on his arm and a beautiful suit. 
And what did I say to him? Have a seat, let's chat. And spent time with him. One man, I rushed him out the door as quickly as I could. The other one, hang around as long as you could. And James says to me, you're judging that person with evil thoughts. You're making the wrong choice in terms of the value of a person based upon what they're wearing. Now, whatever you do, do not get up and run from here in shock. Okay? Just for a moment, stick with me. Right now, some of you are going, Don't wear a hat in church! Take that hat off right now! I know that because some of you have said that with that tone of voice when young men have walked into church with a cap on. Now, I don't wear a cap because I look really stupid in caps, but that's, that's life, okay? Where'd this come from? That somebody wearing a cap in church would make you so angry. Is there a biblical basis for this? Actually, there is. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes in instructions that when the believers gather together, a man should not cover his head because it shows that he is answering directly to God. Now, it was a cultural thing of those days. Because he also then went on to say that when women gather in a church, they must cover their heads. Are you following me? If my grandmothers were to walk in here this morning, they would freak. They would go, why are these women not wearing hats? That's the way it was. Back when I was growing up, women always wore hats to church. None of them knew why. It was just cultural. It was just what you do. You wear hats. Even my little sisters had to wear hats when we went to church, into the church service. Where did that come from? came from 1 Corinthians 11 originally, where Paul said that when a woman is in church, she should wear a veil. And the veil wasn't the burqa that we see today. It was just a veil over her head. And it was a sign of submission in that context. Those thoughts slowly made their way through the centuries to us today. And somewhere along the hat fell away, but still the cap stuck. Following me there? All right, now, does a cap, a man wearing a hat on his head, does it send the same signal it did 2,000 years ago? No. There's just a cultural thing. A man takes his hat off when he comes into, into, comes into church. It's a normal thing we do. But here's where I want to go with this. If we as a church reach the next generations... We're going to have young men walk in here with caps on who have no idea that they're not supposed to wear a cap in church. If you go to them and yell at them and say, take that cap off, they're going to look at you like, what? What have I done? What in the world? Why? They have no idea. The thing is, you don't know either, really. It's just because it's cultural. You don't wear a hat in church. You didn't know it was theological, did you? By the way, we don't have time to go into that sermon. We do have cultural signals that are the equivalent of the hat and the veil. But it's too long to go into it today. We have different cultural signals, entirely different cultural signals that establish and create the same thing. But the point I'm making is we're going to have young men walking here with caps on. Leave them alone. Okay? Leave, just suck it up. Okay? <laughs> just don't panic. It is, it is just one of those, would you rather see that soul in heaven or that head uncovered? Which is more important, their soul 
or just them having, uh, taking the hat off. Another thing, too, we had a young woman on our stage who had torn jeans. <gasps> it's a fashion statement. It's just fashion. She had no idea that you shouldn't wear torn jeans in church because we don't have a placard outside on the wall that says, do not wear torn jeans in church. I'm just looking at our girls. None of them have. I could have used you. Do you see how culturally we just have to realize that if we're going to be reaching out to others and bringing others in, we have to be prepared that we are not, that, that we're going to be very careful to focus on their souls first. Now, if somebody comes in here inappropriately dressed, we'll deal with it. Uh, my church in South Africa, I had one of the men come to me, and he said, you need to tell the women to stop wearing sundresses. You know what sundresses are? They're nice dresses with the little spaghetti straps and stuff like that. Most of those women weren't Christians yet. And I had to say to him, I will not. He said, you must. I said, I will not. They're not even believers yet. Tell them how to dress before they allow them into church. If, if it was immoral, if it was bad, obviously we deal with it. But we make sure that the church remains a place where God's grace is present. And we don't make mountains out of molehills. That we don't make things more important than they need to be. So, he says, okay, first of all, showing discrimination is inconsistent. You're followers of Jesus Christ. The man who ate with sinners. The man who ate with tax collectors. The man who told the parables that, that demonstrated to us that every single life is precious to God. And so, therefore, discrimination within the body of Christ is absolutely inconsistent. Secondly, he says, it's illogical. Now, as we walk into this text, understand this. God does not, uh, God is not against wealth. God is not against rich people and for poor people. As we read this, understand that what God is, is a God of protection. And he understood that in the culture of those days, like today, the poor people are often those who are, are, are not protected, not looked after. And so the compassion of God would show up in that he had compassion, special, strong compassion for those who are poor. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And so he's saying, understand this, that God has got compassion for the poor people. And it's interesting that poor people tend to respond more readily to the gospel than rich people. The problem with our wealth is that it protects us from a lot of the difficulties of life. And we are therefore somewhat insulated. By the way, do you know how you define a rich person in the Bible? They had two changes of clothing. <laughs> Guess which category we're in. I'm a trillionaire. <laughs> Think about it. Okay. Rich people, God says, and we read from Deuteronomy chapter 10, that God is, is a God who cares not just for his people, but for the outsiders as well, for the aliens. And he told his people, and you need to learn to care for the outsiders and the aliens as well. And he says, and there, these people have been chosen to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom to come. And then he points out how sometimes we are, we, 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 our, our value system gets all messed up. He says, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are, the, not, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, it's in that setting. Okay, It doesn't mean all rich people are evil. 
It doesn't mean that at all. It's just in that setting, the rich people would take advantage of the poor, would drag them into court. Would, would, would. The poor people had no protection. There were no uh, uh, legal systems to protect them at all. The rich had all the power and would use it to abuse other people. And he says, do you see how inconsistent this is? That you're making a fuss over the people who actually are doing the most harm to you and the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. How do we do that in our day and age? Just go down to the grocery store and take People magazine off the thing and take Us magazine and take a look at the people we worship and ask yourself, do they believe in Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? Some of them love Jesus. Praise God for that. But we make celebrities, we make uh, 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 sports stars, and we almost worship them. We follow them on Twitter. We follow them on Facebook, and we talk about them, and we praise them. And these people are opposed to Jesus Christ. We're entering a political system, political season. And as you look at those people that you think, oh, I'm going to vote for them, I'm going to vote for her, I'm going to vote for him, ask yourself, are we asking whether these people honor Jesus Christ or honor God in their lives or not? So there's a weird sense in which we don't think, we don't think logically about it at all. He says it's inconsistent to do that. It's, it doesn't fit with who we are. And then third, he points out, discrimination is illegal. It's forbidden by God. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. Interesting thing is, as Jewish believers, and most of them are Jewish believers, they should have known that God had already said this. The book of Leviticus said this, Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. Notice that? Love your neighbor as myself. Old Testament law. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees in Matthew 22, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. It's called the royal law because it was given by the king, and it's called the royal law because it rules all the other laws. It's the top law. And James is now saying to them something that for many of them would be news in terms of Jesus' statements perhaps, but they knew Old Testament that God had already given that as a command, that we are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a lot of people build on that. Oh, well, I don't really love myself. Well, tough. Love your neighbor as you're supposed to love yourself, okay? Let's just, let's get beyond that quickly so that you don't, can't, can't avoid it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of your neighbor the way you would take care of yourself. Let me just put a thought out there, a word out there. One of the ministries we have is a ministry to divorcees. And I am astonished, shocked, at how many men who claim to be Christians will do everything they can to abuse their wife, their ex-wife, and children financially. They lie. 
in one case, actually more than one, but in one specific case, he and his, his, his mistress attend church every Sunday. Every Sunday they attend church and go to Bible studies. And he lies about his money and he will not settle with his wife because he's hiding money. These kind of verses say to you, watch out, watch this. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do commit adultery, but do, do, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have, broke, you have become a lawbreaker. In other words, understand this. You may say, well, I haven't broken those laws. I haven't broken that one, but I keep these laws. It doesn't matter. You're breaking this law. You are a lawbreaker. There's something wrong with you that you need to face. Here's an interesting thing. When Jesus came into this world, and it's there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when Jesus began to teach his disciples what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he was teaching us how to live as citizens of heaven while we're citizens on earth. And actually, when he spoke about the law, he made it a whole lot harder. When he said, you shall not murder, also applies to the fact you shall not hate your brother or you shall not assassinate his character. And you shall not commit adultery means that you shouldn't even look at a woman to lust after her because it shows there's something wrong inside of you. And so, in a sense, when he, when he spoke about the law, he made it a whole lot harder, a whole lot more difficult. And the reason he did that is because he, if we needed to understand as human beings, we can't keep the law. I grew up in a church where we were taught, if you keep the Ten Commandments, God might let you into heaven. Oh, come on. Nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. The law was designed to show us that we desperately need God's mercy. We desperately need God's forgiveness. The law was designed to be a mirror that when we look in it, we go, oh my gosh, I can't do this. That's when the mercy of God comes in, where he says, okay, I sent my son to be punished on the cross for your sins. He was buried and rose again, and he can offer you forgiveness. And once he offers you forgiveness, you don't have to keep the law anymore. You're now a child of God. Actually, you do, but now you get the Holy Spirit to help you keep the law, and, and so on. You with me there? So... James is writing, and he's telling us that, listen, be very careful of the fact that discrimination come, we can discriminate against somebody for their socioeconomic status. Rich or poor, we decide if they're good, valuable or less valuable. Physical appearance. Have you ever noticed the fact that attractive people you think, are, think of as more valuable? They did a study years ago with children in, in a, a um, nursery school. And with the cameras on them, they noticed that all the nursery school workers spent way more time comforting and playing with attractive children than they did with the less attractive children. Just fact of life. When my mother was small, she had red hair and freckles. And a teacher one day came to her and said to her, oh, you poor girl, you're so covered in freckles. Do you know that for the rest of her life, that hung in my mother's mind, that there was something about her that was not valuable because she had freckles, for crying out loud. <laughs> Color of skin. When I was in uh, Bible college, <laughs> the, my best friend, his name was Lawyer Ward. And Lawyer was a black guy. And he and I served on the student council together for several years. And one day we were sitting eating lunch and he looked at me and he said, you know what? 
I sometimes forget you're a South African. <laughs> I said, thanks. I never remember that you're black. She's like, let's set this straight here, okay? Color of skin, accent. We did a, a, a fundraising at our church up in Philadelphia. And we brought in an organization, and the guy who came to us as a representative was from Dallas. And he said to me, I will never speak from your pulpit. I will tell you what to say, but I will never speak from your pulpit. I said, why? He said, because people in the Northeast hear a southern accent, and they immediately think I'm a used car salesman. <laughs> I said, see, the accent, they, don't, they just, the accent would be too, too jarring for them to adjust to. And so you will do all the speaking. Gender. Discriminate on the basis of gender. If you watch shows on TV and ads on TV, who is the person portrayed as a buffoon? The man. Notice that? Watch those TV ads and think, if we flipped this, the world would go crazy. If we made a woman look stupid in a TV ad, there would be murder. There would be rioting in the streets. But flip it and all the buffoon, all the, all the buffoons, all the stupid ones are always men. There was years ago, the first one I remember like that was a Charlie. Remember Charlie was a women's uh, perfume? And I remember the Charlie ad, a woman and a man walking down the street together, and as they part company, she pats him on the bottom, and he walks away. And I thought, oh my gosh. If he patted her on the bottom, the you know, National Organization of Women would have been here in screaming anger. But it's not there. So I'm going to start an organization. Uh, I didn't put where it is for it, a, a, the protection of men against this. <laughs> Just weird how we switch stuff like that. Girth. Some people are overweight not because they overeat, but just simply because their bodies function this way and age. We discriminate tremendously on the age, on, on the factor of age. And a lot of people, once, well, as you get older, you become invisible. People don't see you because we live in a culture that worships uh, the young and so on. And so James is saying to us, whatever you do, don't value people based on something external. God said when he sent um, the prophet to find a king, he said, I don't look on the outside. I look on the inside. I value a person for what's on the inside. This summer, my daughter went through a months of really, really deep trauma. It was so traumatic that my son and I, who were with her for these several months, are suffering from PTSD. It was that bad. It was, I mean, whatever. We, we were both shattered by what she was going through, her family too. She went through a really terrible time. This morning, she posted on Facebook something I'd like to read to you. And some of you saw her during the summer and encountered her. She lost weight. She, I mean, she, she lost so much weight. She's just in the stage of recovering from this, but she lost so much weight. And she was seething with anger a lot of the time. She ran away from me several times. She was just going through a most horrible, horrible experience. And she writes this. and She posted it on Facebook this morning. I spend a lot of time at my dad's church. So I got to know the church people. They checked all the boxes, kind, 
open, authentic, joyful. Now, one of the things to understand about a pastor's kid is that it's often very difficult for them to develop their own faith. And for my kids, I always tell them, I don't want you to believe in Jesus because I do. I want you to believe in Jesus. And she faked it for a while, and then she rebelled, and she turned away completely. And part of what she was going through this summer was that, having turned her back on God. They checked all the boxes, kind, open, authentic, joyful. After months of feeling like no one was listening to me, a woman at the church listened to me, like deeply cared what I had to say. I dumped it all on her, and then she prayed for me. I teared up and sobbed and then went to the sanctuary. It was empty, very dimly lit. I lay down on a pew in the back, closed my eyes, and started wrestling what I felt like my heart and mind were saying. My stubbornness was strong, but so was this feeling of something was about to change. I wanted change, but this, no, 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 damn it, no. Fine, maybe. I went back to my dad's office and said, tell me, I'm listening. I'm not sure the date. I'm sure my dad knows, but yeah, I am now a Christian. I decided to educate myself on the things I swore were fairy tales, and there is undeniable truth there, undeniable truth. Please share what I'm saying, because your church embodies Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Hey? I thank God for you and for that, okay? And there are many more people that I believe God is going to send our way. And when they come here, by God's grace, let them walk into the midst of grace. And if you've come today and you don't yet know whether you believe in Jesus or not, then I ask you, talk to Tony, talk to myself, talk to anybody in leadership. We'd love to just give you that opportunity to be able to do what Mandy did. Back there on that back pew, come to that place where you say, all right, God, I'm ready to let you come in. Let's pray together. Father God,